Welcome back to the You Do What podcast, where I interview real professionals and real careers to figure out just what it is they do to make money. Today, joining us is my good friend, Ryan, uh, who is a um, chief legal officer um, at a large fintech company. Um, and before we get started, we're going to do a little disclaimer. Uh, I have this disclaimer posted in my bio. It's also in the disclaimer episode. But once again, just to be clear, uh, all opinions and views expressed on the You Do What podcast and that of Ryan's expressed today are solely his own opinions and voices and have no reflection on his employer or his employment whatsoever. Um, so this is completely just all views expressed here on the show are our own and personal opinions and do not reflect on either of our employers. How did I do, Ryan? Perfect. I, you should go to law school. <laughs> well... <laughs> Go back for that third degree. Yeah, third time's a charm, right? <laughs> so uh, so welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Now, I, I did have a question kind of right out of the gate. Um, sure, let's do it. We, I actually interviewed somebody uh, on the podcast, and their employer uh, had found out uh, and was less than thrilled. They said, you should have engaged with our corporate communications team. You should have you know, taken all these steps to ensure that it was okay for you to speak on the platform. Um, and his response was, I didn't even say who I worked for. I didn't, I didn't give my, uh, a company's name. I, I, I did nothing of the sort and I'm still not allowed to post this, or I, I might be crossing wires by posting this. Um, and that prompted me to look into my own social media, uh, kind of policy. Um, and what I came out of it was, was that this disclaimer is kind of a key part of extricating yourself from maybe a retaliation from your employer. Uh, yeah. Is that, is that about right? Is this all it takes? Yeah. I mean, it depends, you know, I think on, you know, shockingly a lawyer saying it depends, but I, I do think it depends on kind of what the subject matters you're talking about. If you're on a, on a podcast or do anything that's kind of being, in, you know, accessible by the public and you kind of go into your employer and like, the, you know, behind the curtain and you kind of maybe rail on them a little bit or, you know, God forbid, give away any kind of proprietary information. I think you're setting yourself up from trouble. So I think that's, you know, that is the purpose behind the policy is, you know, there's certainly, you know, brand and reputational risks that the, all companies take very seriously. And they want to make sure that when employees are speaking out on behalf of the company, that they're obviously in the know and it's, under, it's somewhat controlled. I think for something like this, it's more personal. Um, you know, you, you do the disclaimer as you've done. Obviously, if you know, spent some time on it because you looked on your own, you've had, a, you know, a podcast on it it's specifically. I think that's, you know, that's enough. Like, so. I think it's all relative to what you're talking about it. And if, if, you know, if a guest came on and said, I hate my company, I suck. And you know, the boss is a jerk and blah, blah, blah. Well, then you're just walking into a trap. I mean, and then you, know, <laughs> you, you can't really have expectations like that. You're going to be not held accountable for what you said. We're still held accountable for what we say. Yeah. And if you're going to, if you're going to start, you know, blowing smoke or uh, kind of given access that shouldn't be granted to the public. Yeah, it's, right. it's something's coming for you. I agree. So Ryan, in the legal career track, right? A quick Google search would reveal that uh, the average pay for an attorney is somewhere between 140 and 220,000 per year. Uh, seemingly you're immediately employable at some pretty high salaries. Um, is that how it was when you were coming up the ranks? Was it, was it pretty lucrative to get started right out of college? Um, 
I went directly from college to law school. So essentially went to school for seven straight years, which wasn't the worst thing in the world from, from 18 to 25. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun and a lot of flexibility. But I think when you get out, it all depends on what you want to do, depending on what your salary op- opportunities are. It also depends, at least on your first job, where you finish in your class ranking. Like law school, and if you're on law review and all these journals, law school might be one of the few bastions now that's still out there where it does matter um, kind of at least your initial job and also where you go to school, right? Like I went to Villanova for law school, great law school, but it's not Harvard, it's not Yale, you know, on and on it goes. They're going to go right into top jobs in New York, Chicago, LA, you know, pick the major uh, metropolitan area where you're going to step into those jobs that have those salaries that you just, that, that average you, you talked about or higher. Um, for me, um, I went into a clerkship right out of law school because um, I, I wanted to focus on bankruptcy and bankruptcy law. So I did a clerkship at a bankruptcy, um, at a, with a bankruptcy judge and based in uh, Camden, New Jersey, um, which, you know, there's, it's a federal, it's a federal clerkship. So it's basically, you know, whatever, the, I don't remember, it was 50 grand, 55 grand, but that's, you know, it's based on the, the federal government scale. Um, what's, a, what's a clerkship? Yeah. So I essentially work for a judge, um, you know, the judge, um, I do, I worked with my judge, particular judge Burns. She did a ton of, um, uh, primarily consumer bankruptcy work. That was the main docket of cases within, you know, the southern southern New Jersey jurisdiction. A couple of commercial, um, you know, bankruptcies too, but primarily consumer. So I'd review her docket, um, go through the, the pleadings and the filings. I'll essentially get her prepped, if you will, for hearings that she had upcoming. I would do the first cut of a of an opinion for the judge that she would wrote, or that she would uh, she would issue. Um, so I primarily focused on, you know, a lot of research writing. Um, communication with the judge. Um, I was in the, I was in her chambers. Like I never really was out in front of court. I got in front of court to watch some of the hearings that I'd worked on extensively. Uh, but for the most part, it was more of a, a research and writing, uh, you know, assistant, so to speak. Okay. It's pretty common for people to graduate from law school and do something like this. Yeah. Yeah. And there's all sorts of levels of clerkships. There's state court, there's, you know, within state court, there's other variations, family court, criminal court, um, there's federal clerkships. And you know, obviously, the biggest ticket items are the, you know, clerking for the Supreme Court, which again, that goes to where do you go to school, what your, you know, kind of class rank, things like that. So, you know, when you first get back out of school, when you first get out of school, over the law school, it does depend on where you, um, school you went to, where you finished. You know, clerkship, I almost add, is like a redshirt year. You get another, you're not in law school, but you get another year to kind of build up your resume and then go out right. to like into private practice, um, which is exactly what I did. Um, and then when you avail yourself of that clerkship, uh, you then have opportunity, I think, to get into that um, and more into that range that you, the salary range you talked about. But I will say there's nonprofits, you know, certainly nonprofit work you can go do um, public work or government work. They're not going to pay salaries anywhere near that. Um, the majority of the salaries you're talking about are probably, in, you know, private law firms and probably okay. bigger ones. Sure. Uh, smaller, you know, call it 15 or less attorneys are not going to pay those kind of, they're not going to be in the nine, they're not going to be in six figures right out of law school. You're probably you know, somewhere between 65 and 95 ballpark. Right. Um, but bigger law firms will pay those salaries. And it's an interesting dynamic. And not to get too much in the weeds of this, you tell me, but it's just a dynamic because, you know, most people, I'd say the majority of people that go to law school um, are going to come out with some some level of student loans. And obviously, like any else, law schools are expensive now. So, um, you know, you're going to, you know, again, same thing with college, but law school, you might amplify, you know, college loans, you have law school loans, you come out, like you got to get a job, you know, effectively to help live your life, but also start paying your loans because mm-hmm. they're going to come knocking. Yeah. <laughs> you can only push them off for so long. So 
that's why I think, you know, there's, there's a challenge to get folks in a nonprofit, you know, kind of space. Cause those, you know, they're not, they're not as well funded of course. And therefore the, the salaries aren't as high, but um, you know, government, I've seen various state federal governments doing a pretty good job of trying to, you know, give opportunity for, for new attorneys to go into the nonprofit space uh, or public support space and get forgiveness of loans or some kind of like, you know, you further extend your, you know, your, your time to pay, start paying them back. So um, there's real opportunity there. Uh, but you, you know, you really have to, you know, what's your path? What do you want to do? Um, and how do you, you know, where do you want to take it? Yeah. Let me ask you a question about this com like competitive sort of structure that you've already outlined about, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's one stage gate of competitiveness where your academic performance in high school has to allow you to get into one of these top schools, or I, I guess this would be college rather. Right. I mean, first, first you got to kind of like get into a good college and then those, that college you have to perform well in just to even get into the Villanova's even, or the Yale Harvard's sure. so on and so forth. Right. So right. you kind of have to be, top half, at least top quarter, just to get into some of those. And then from there, you have to be top half again to get into the big, big firms. Well, what about, what about the Tylers of the world that are kind of like, you know, B minus students? Do we, do we just have less options or do we still get to choose a variety of disciplines just knowing that we won't qualify for the elite positions? Like, yeah. can we still pick, like, I want to go into, uh, I don't know, like contract, law for big firms or real estate or elderly law or something do, do those middle of the road folks still get to choose their discipline and explore those yeah we it's not we're not talking about tyler we're going to talk about ryan because ryan was a middle of the road student in law school so oh, well, um, yeah so what i needed to do because um you have to pay attention right it's kind of a takeaway i'll say you have to pay attention about and ask questions and, you know, okay, I'm not a top 10, you know, top 10% is law review, top 25, you're pretty much good. You're probably most likely going to get a job at a decent firm coming out. I was not any of those things. So what is it you're going to do to make yourself an attractive um, candidate for whatever the role may be, a clerkship, private firm, big, small, mm -hmm. on, on the list goes. Um, so what I did when I was in law school, understanding kind of where I was, middle of the road kind of guy, um, was I started doing volunteer work at uh, various banks. I, I really enjoy the bankruptcy bankruptcy space, bankruptcy law space. I did a little bit of it after my uh, at the summer law firm, the summer job I had at, at a law firm uh, after my first year of law school. So I enjoyed it. Kind of knew where I sat um, with respect to the grades, and you know, saw my friends that were in that top third getting jobs and summer so summer uh, associate jobs at big law firms. <laughs> Ryan was not getting those, um, so I'm like, well, what do I need to do? So I started doing some volunteer work. Um, it, my second year of law school in the first semester, um, I did volunteer work for a company in Philadelphia because Villanova was right outside of Philadelphia for the Consumer Bankruptcy Assistance Project. Essentially, is like you work with a practicing attorney um, and they, they offer free you know, pro bono legal services to people who can't afford to have um, can't afford to pay for for attorneys. And then there, you know, similar to the clerkship, you're kind of doing all the grunt work on behalf of the attorney, kind of doing all the research, meeting with the client, doing some intake forms, filling out. Uh, bankruptcy is kind of uh, for this, particularly for debtor, for consumer debtors. It's very form driven, so you just kind of fill out the forms, make sure of the right information. So I did that for uh, for that semester. That was kind of like an externship, sort of. I was, you know, I didn't get credit for it necessarily, but I, you know, mm -hmm. it got on my resume and so forth. Um, and then I just started looking around for additional, like, what's the next step in that process? And I found the opportunity to do an internship with a with a with a uh, bankruptcy judge in. Delaware in the uh, district of Delaware, um, which as you know, you know, 
Delaware is a corporate hub, so it has a lot of Chapter 11 cases. And oh, now, yeah. you know, gonna gonna age myself a bit, but this is I was in law school from '99 to 2002, so right around 2000, 2001, when I was in that working for uh, that judge in, in Delaware, Judge Walrath, um, was a dot com bust. So, and all those firms were filing bankruptcies in Delaware. And there was, it was one of the most tremendous experience I ever had because we were doing this like the dot com with, oh, the world's over, the dot coms are going under, they're blah, blah, blah. And it was a really interesting kind of time to be there. And Judge Walrath was fantastic. She was just really wonderful. Um, but she had posted in at the time the Villanova Law kind of like newspaper looking for internships. And I saw it and had a need and put a resume together and went and interviewed and did the whole thing. You know, got that job. That was actually a 12 month internship. So I did that. Through, through the summer and so forth into my third year of law school. And then I was in the third year of law school and I was able to, through Judge Walrath, um, connect with a brand new judge back in Philadelphia, um, Judge Carey. And I got hooked up with him to do an externship for him. His, like he was literally just coming on the bench. Like I met, met with him in an interview and his boxes weren't unpacked in his chambers. Like it was all brand new. And he's kind of like, I'm just figuring this out too. So that was a cool experience to help him set up, um, you know, his, what they call his bench book, like kind of like the standard, Here's a precedent law for the given certain. He's in Philadelphia's in the Third Circuit, so I helped him build that out and so forth. And then you know, if you you know, then stop there and look back. The, you know, that's a year. This you know, 18 months. I'd added a volunteerism with the Consumer Bankruptcy Project and two federal judges. One in Chapter, you know, Delaware was primarily Chapter 11, you know, commercial bankruptcies in a, in, a, in a big way with the dot com bust. And then Judge Carey doing primarily consumer again. So then my resume was built out. So even though I was one of the guys that wasn't, you know, middle of the road kind of guy, um, you know, I applied for this clerkship with Judge Burns because of the bankruptcy experience I had, because there was commitment to being in bankruptcy and, you know, there's work that was put in and understanding of it. Obviously, I've just come out of law school. I didn't know it all, sure. but there was a, there was, you know, arguably a passion for it. Judge Walrath, or excuse me, Judge Burns and I met, interviewed and, you know, got the clerkship. So that was kind of how I got my first job out of law school, being a middle of the road kind of dude. Yeah, two things that you said really stuck out to me there, Ryan. One was, you know, if you recognize where you're at versus your peer group, and if you're, you know, humble enough to say, all right, there's some deficiencies here, understand that, like on paper, we're not, yeah. we're not fighting pound for pound equal. What can you do to go into and, and get that leg up? And one of the things I think is if you know where you want to go, the world will make a path for it. Um, so, kind of like what you said with, going through an unprecedented amount of, maybe not unprecedented, but a huge amount of bankruptcies uh, from the yeah. dot-com bubble burst in the state where most of those were incorporated right. gave you some, I mean, not, not that you could control the timing, but a, kind of a fortunate stroke of getting, I would imagine, a lot of reps under your belt and a lot of variations on this thing that you were pursuing. And that probably yeah. set you up to be a strong candidate versus almost anybody. Does that sound about right? Sounds 100% right. And I'll say, and this is kind of like, there's a lot in it. There's a lot of work that goes in to get people where they need to be and a lot of personal work that you have to go into. But make no mistake, you know, there's sometimes there's, you just get lucky, right? You might back into it somehow, but sometimes it's just lucky into that exact point. Dot com bust, brand new judge who needed help. And, you know, I, you know, I made, you know, I made focus and this is important in my career even today. Like, he, you know, he hired me. He, he needs my help. Um, he's going to get my attention, you know, as much as he needs it. And, you know, that then builds that trust and loyalty where someone's going to go to bat for you because, you know, you know, you need to make the, you need to build that relationship too. 
So, but yeah, I mean, there's no doubt some of this is going to be luck. Some of this is, you know, to me, it's always a combination of, of grit and luck. Like you got to put mm-hmm. in the time, you got to see the, you got to see the path. You got to think through it. Don't expect that you're always just going to fall into it. Um, right. Someone's going to hand you anything like that is, <laughs> that's I have four kids, a 19 year old and a 17 year old or one in college, one about to go to college. And I was like, guys, you got, you need to understand the world is a meritocracy. And if you think people are going to hand you anything, like there's no chance that you're going to make it none, zero. You got to make your own path. Part of it, you might fall into it, which is not the bad thing. But don't always expect that you're going to fall into it. You know, you, sometimes you got to grind and, and get there your own, on your own. Well, um, you were working for Judge Burns. Yeah. What, what, what kind of came next after the courtship and, and Judge Burns? Yeah, kind of. We got in, you know, just as background, like I always wanted to be a lawyer. Knew I wanted to be a lawyer when I was, you know, probably, you know, junior high, high school. Just something that I was, I was drawn to. And, just enjoyed, you know, it was on TV, of course, you know, you watch the guys in the suits and they get up there and they're talking and they're doing all the things. And I looked into it more and I always, I always had a kind of love to read and, and you know, Oh, that's read. You know, I got to read a lot and kind of analyze. You know, my, my mom would always like to argue too, which is, you know, another benefit to being a lawyer. Um, what was the next step to get to law school? It was like, Oh, I loved like history and like, okay, well, you know, at the time, and I would, I would say differently now for anybody who's thinking about going to law school, but you know, History was like a lot of people went history, political science is kind of the natural course to go into law school if you weren't going to go into teaching. And I loved history. And so I you know, went into history when I was in college um, and it all worked out because, you know, you have to, no matter where you go in college, you have to have, you have to have a decently, you know, good GPA. Like you need to be in a certain spot. Sometimes, you know, I, if I went, as, went into college as a math major, I wouldn't have gotten to law school because I'm terrible at math. And I, you know, back then now, so you got to know what your strengths are. Cause I, you know, you commented earlier, you got to know what your strengths are. And mine was, I For needed sure. to get a high GPA to get into the schools I wanted to get into. So that kind of, you know, but, but it was always very linear to me, honestly, Ty, like I always knew I wanted to go to law school and, you know, the clerkship was like, I need to, you know, when I realized I was a middle of the road guy, not going to walk into a decent job coming right out of law school. Clerkship gave me that next step to get into um, a decent law firm, and I did. Uh, I got into after the clerkship. I got into uh, a good law firm based in northern New Jersey called Riker Danzig, um, and I was in their bankruptcy uh, and you know kind of creditors' rights practice, um, which is exactly what I wanted to do. So it was all working out for me. Um, you know, the the challenge was this is 2003, 2004. Um, you know that you know just you're still not making a ton of money. Um, you know, I was, I had just got, I was recently married, um, trying to find a house in Northern New Jersey. It's just really expensive. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was a little bit of a challenging time, um, to kind of find out where we were going to, you know, put our stake in the ground and live. And I didn't, you know, be honest and no offense to anybody listens to this, you know, North Jersey wasn't for me. Um, just wasn't where, where we wanted to be. So, you know, with that said, um, I'll just kind of go through, like we, you know, we moved, um, back into Pennsylvania where my wife grew up and I just did a long commute for it was you know it's pretty hefty it was about 65 miles one way um just to and when you're billing hours and time it it grinds on you pretty pretty much and we had you know my first kid so life started you know happening for me at that time so we knew fairly quickly i was at Riker for a little over two years and we i knew i needed to pivot and plus i wasn't really loving what i was doing it was a bigger firm it's like you know i think it was 150 lawyers so not huge but you know pretty big um i was still kind of the guy in the office doing research and writing and that's just you know i mean you know this about me. it's not really my personality is to be kind of mm-hmm. stuck in a closet just writing stuff and doing stuff i want to interact with clients and i wanted to get in court um what kind of what kind of hours were you working uh, at these two jobs kind of the the clerkship and then this not this one sure. you said yeah. you said billable hours which I, I think is a common practice in law yeah. right so how yeah, much- so 
Yeah. So the clerkship is no, I mean, clerkships, you know, you're, it's like any federal jobs, nine to five, um, sometimes oh, a little okay. bit later, depending on what the judge has, there's no billable hours in the clerkship. You're just, you essentially just work for the judge. Um, when I got to Riker, you know, you're, you have, you know, you have in most law firms, particularly ones of size have target billable targets that you're required to meet. And, you know, one thing to say is, you know, just let's call it, you know, if you work bill 40 hours in a week, you work 50 weeks of the year, it's 2000 hours. That's a good, that's a good number, but the, what that's not, realistic because you're not going to bill every minute of an eight hour day. You really, you know, right. you, you can't, you obviously ethically, you can't bill for, you know, bathroom breaks, lunch, you know, on and on the list goes, you go down the hall to talk to your buddy. So you're probably pulling, if you, you know, I'll just, you know, to, to refer round numbers, you're probably working 50 to 55 to bill 40, um, and, you know, maybe 60 hours to bill 40. Um, and then you have client development. You know, I didn't have a ton of that when you're most junior lawyers don't have a ton of client development. They just sort of kind of grinders. Um, and it's not a lot of interaction. Like you might interact with your, your peers or you may interact with a partner you're doing work for. Um, but you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a really, um, uh, one thing I think about the legal profession that I think is a challenge is there's not a lot of apprenticeship that goes with it. Now that's, you know, some people may disagree with that. It, you know, it might be fair, but my experience was there's not a lot of like, Hey, let me talk to you about how this should go. It's more like, Hey, I need you to go research, fill in the blank, write me this memo. I need it by tomorrow. And you're expected just to go do that. And that's because, you know, the partner who or the senior associate working for is very busy and they're trying to bill hours too. It's kind of a, it is kind of a bit of a vicious cycle, I would say within, you know, just a general legal practice. Um, but I, you know, call it 50, 60 hours a week, uh, with that long commute was starting to grind, you know, on myself yeah. and, you know, the, the, the newborn and so forth. So needed mm -hmm. to make a change. So to, actually took a step backwards. So went to a small firm based in, um, Pennsylvania, big for the area, but it went, you know, I was at 150, this at the time's law, this law firm at 20 lawyers. So, you know, quite candidly took a pay cut, but I wanted to be closer to home. I wanted to get more exposure to clients and be in court more. So, you know, that's, you know, I'm at the time 20, 28, 27, 28 years old. So I'm taking a, a like a, basically a third of a cut in my comp was not you wow. know necessarily ideal, but I knew in my heart of heart, that was the rest, best move for me in my career. Like I needed to go do something else other than like, I was not going to be a big law firm person. Like it wasn't who I was and not what I wanted to do. And then it was great. I mean, the law firm I went to, it's called Fitzpatrick Lentz and Booba. It's still, uh, it's still in Center Valley, Pennsylvania. Uh, the funny story is Booba is spelled B-U-B-B-A. And when I went for the interview, Bubba. I tried to be, yeah, I tried to be proactive. Uh, you know, so I was on the website, knew all the people's faces. And Joe Booba walked in and I said, Mr. Bubba, nice to meet you. And he was great. He didn't like correct me or anything like that. And and then like five minutes later, another partner came in and did part of the, as a part of the interview. I was like, oh, I see you met Joe Booba. I'm like, yes, I did. I did meet Joe Booba. In the back of my mind, I'm like, shit. Like, but he was really cool. So anyway, still got the job. So it all worked right. out. And I, Got the job, started, you know, whatever, a month later or something. And I literally walked in. They're like, all right, we need you to go to court tomorrow and go, you know, argue this motion on behalf of one of our, they had like a lot of bank clients for like the consumer bankruptcy side. I'm like, okay, go where and do what? And they're like, yeah, go to court. You got to argue. So thrusted right in. And there's where I started to kind of hit my stride because you were really asked to do a lot in a smaller firm, as mm -hmm. opposed to just go do a memo. You had client meetings, you went to court. Um, you were on the phone with opposing counsel. Like it really started to feel like practicing law a bit more than when I was in a bigger firm, just kind of the dude in the back writing memos. Sure. So um, it was great. It was great. That was a great you know, switch for me. And I was, I was close to home. I was 15, 20 minutes from home. And, you know, you know, I had a, our second kid when I was there. And, um, 
it was good. It was a great experience uh, for me to go kind of make that switch at that point in my career. Now, did you, for both of these firms, did you just find them online and apply for them? Or how did you, like, did you know any, like, how'd you find them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously, remember, remember how old I am. It was a little bit different back in. in That's kind of what yeah, I'm wondering, right? Really, I, yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure how to find Google search was back then. Yeah. It was, well, there no, it wasn't. No, it was. I mean, I don't even know if it existed, but I have no idea. But, it, you know, there was emails available, but it was more like you were just kind of I, I did a little bit of cold, cold emailing folks. Well, let me take a step back for Riker Danzig. They came in because uh, I was a clerk for a bankruptcy judge in New Jersey. So they're mm-hmm. they were in front of my judge all the time. So oh, that one was a little bit easier to kind of shoot off a resume and have conversations. Sure. Um, and bankruptcy was still pretty busy in the early 2000s. It was obviously shifting quickly away from that and, you know, with the economy. Um and then for the the job of Fitzpatrick Lentz and Booba, that was that was actually it's a it's actually happenstance. Like I saw the head of litigation bankruptcy. I called, you know, sent an email, said told him, you know, look, I'm in Riker Danzig in northern New Jersey, but I live in the Lehigh Valley. I'm looking to come or closer to home. You know, think your firm is great, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I might have sent it to three other people. Um, but I, you know, and, and I, I got I got I mean, you know, sometimes you gotta ask, right? I got lucky because the attorney that was uh, working with Doug, Doug Smiley was a, the partner that I worked with. He, um, she was going on maternity leave, so he needed help. So it actually just the timing worked out pretty well for me. But it was a cold email, and you know, again, it goes back to sometimes you got to make your own luck um, yeah. and you got to ask. So that's that's how that all came together. And but got also it. got lucky. So he backed into it because the other attorney was going on maternity leave, so worked out. It's like Gary Player says, right? The more I practice, the luckier I get. You know? That's right. Would you say that you were wearing a lot of hats at the smaller firm or was it just more that you were completing the process of any given case? Like, how did yeah. you get more uh, experience different from the large law firm? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I think <clears throat> definitely when I first got there it was more like you're getting everything you're getting. You're, you're able to see you know, from client interview to hi- client hiring you to handling that case for that client to whatever you had to do, you know, draft a pleading or send a letter to conversation with opposing counsel to potentially a court. Like I saw that from beginning to end, which I was not seeing in the bigger law firm. So that is how it started. And then because of that firm, you, you do have to wear a bunch of hats. And I steal this, I stole this phrase from Doug a long time ago. It's good work begets good work. So I was doing pretty good work and they needed somebody to go do something in labor and employment um, for a, for, you know, a, a kind of a firm client, right? A lot of, even at firms, that's why I have institutional clients. So I, you know, kind of dug in on labor and employment. Then they had somebody that left the firm and went, um, that was doing the workers' comp defense for some of the, some of the, you know, the industrial businesses that we represented. So I had to learn about workers' comp defense and, you know, how it works. And workers' comp is a whole different animal than like civil court. They have their own kind of court and jurisdiction and judges. And so I learned about that too. So it was a little bit of, um, um, you know, kind of jack of all trades. It's like I, you know, learning is something I like to do and like trying new things. And, you know, and, you know, I know where there's deficiencies um, where I can fill in gaps. And but I'm also like, oh, that sounds real cool. I'll try that. Right. Um, So I'm all I'm all in for that kind of stuff. You know, look, I'm not going to go out there and try to become an astronaut tomorrow. But like, I, you know, I'm interested in trying new things and, you know, things that I think are that interest me. And I'm also a team player and I was the firm needs some help. and I'm happy to help. So it was great. It was a great experience at that firm. But like anything else you know, life, you know, potential opportunities, you kind of got to run some stuff down. So I, I had a case for, um, so this is, again, this is also about relationships that you build over time. And there was, there was a 
lawyer that left Riker Danzig right before I joined and went went in-house at, at AIG, American International Group, the big insurance company. He had family um, that that lived in about a half hour from where I was in, in Pennsylvania that needed some help. They were getting kind of entered into a bad deal. They had a small family business, entered in a bad deal with a kind of a kind of a crooked guy. And they were just there was a lot of stuff going on they need help with. Through playing in the uh, Riker Danzig softball league when we used to scrimmage the AIG people, just because we knew them, they were local to kind of where we were. I met this guy, and um, you know, he's like, "Hey, you're based down." I emailed me and said, "Hey, my family, you know, family cousins or something need some help. Can you can you jump in here?" So I did. Helped him out. Um, got a good result for his family. Six months later, there was an opening at at, at AIG for in-house lawyer, in-house litigation attorney kind of filling in the bankruptcy creditors' rights, more creditors' rights than bankruptcy. He asked me if I was interested. That, and I was because in-house, and I, you know, I could, I'll go into some detail about the difference between private practice and in-house, but in-house is kind of like you know a crown jewel. If you're, if you're not going to want to continue to bill hours and just churn, because when you're billing hours, when you get to January 1, you go back to zero. And you got to start all over again, and that just that's that's the that's the mouse the hamster wheel oh. that just keeps going. So sure. you know that's a lifestyle. You know people like it, some people don't mind it. Um, you know for me at that point in my career, I was again probably still late twenties. I didn't know if I really loved the, the hamster wheel of going back to zero and have to you know kind of build and build and build. So I was interested in the opportunity. The drawback was it was back in North Jersey, so I would have to commute. Oh again my gosh, you're to, back to North Jersey. Yeah. Okay. So and, and you, you know, know how that is. Not a big fan. Correct. Always take an interview. You never know. Like, you never know what's going to happen, what you're going to learn. You can always practice interviews. I'm a big fan of like, just take an interview for interview sake. Um, totally you know, don't... agree. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. So I took the interview and was kind of blown away with the, with the people that I'd be working with and for. Um, so long story short, um, end up taking that job, understanding the commute. Um, I think that's when about time. I think I got a Prius because <laughs> I knew that the gas was going to be killer. Um, this is, so this is 07 when I took that job and started AIG and that was my first stint into being an in-house lawyer. So let me give you a little bit back on difference between, so we went clerkship, private practice, now we're in-house, right? So when you're in-house, you're effectively, you are the company's lawyers, meaning I'm just like any other employee in IT, HR, you know, on, on in marketing, like I'm pay, I have a salaried employee. I don't have to bill hours, but I handle the, that the, the company is my client. Like right. they are my only client. Right. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's why it's kind of a good gig. You still get to practice law. You don't have to worry about billing hours. You don't have to worry about client development. You, you know, there, there is a, from, you know, not for me at the time, cause I came from a small firm to, a, you know, a giant behemoth and AIG, but typically you go from a firm into in-house. There's a little bit of a cut because you don't have to bill hours. You don't have client sure. development. It's not nine to five when you're in-house, like some, like other people do. And, you know, some other, you know, departments in, at a big company, yep. but it's, it's, you know, it's the hours aren't, you know, you don't have to bill hours and bill 60 hours to really bill 40, right? Like you kind of, you know, work as you need to work and, you know, in the nine to five, nine to six, nine to seven, whatever you need to do. Yeah. Um, but essentially the company is your client and you don't have to bill hours. Like that's the big draw, like for, I think to go in-house. Now is, is there in-house options right out of law school or is that usually not, it's, the company's it's usually a, not hired that way? Yeah, it's a fair question. And it's one that I grapple with today in my current job is I, so two schools of thought. One is there are opportunities depending on the company because you can bring in lawyers and train them, right? Get them right. trained and how they, you know, you know, kind of, you know, you know, they develop skill set by working with you in in-house. I'm of the other mindset. 
I don't hire them right out of law school. I think uh, you, you, you need to go develop your skill set um, and understand kind of particularly in litigation. Like if you're in working in litigation, which means, you know, that's like file complaints and sue people and, you know, back and forth, like you're not, you need to go, you need to go do that in the private practice to really understand it works because a lot of what you do, if you're in-house litigation counsel is you're managing law firms uh, that are representing you, your company in a litigation. So how can you manage them if you really don't know what you're doing? So um, the transactional side where, you're, you know, kind of reviewing contracts, you know, kind of maybe, maybe my perspective is, you know, you can get a lot more, you can see a lot more and of different types of, of, of legal work if you're in a private firm as opposed to going right to in-house. Um, so I, so I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not one that hires directly out of law school. I've actually talked to Michigan state law school folks a, a bunch and we've had an intern who was in law school, but you know, I was fairly clear that when I'm not looking to hire right out of law school. Um, but if they have alumni that are in, in the private practice realm or at other, you know, in-house jobs, I'm happy to sure. talk to them. But, but yeah, no, it's, it's primarily you go, you, you don't go in-house directly from law school. I'm assuming you kept in touch with some of your buddies uh, yeah. from uh, Villanova and you probably sure. have some other lawyer friends. Yeah. When you, when you kind of looked sideways, what, where was, where were the most of, of your cohort doing at this time? Were, were they yeah. in private practice? Did they, did they seek in-house or, or I, I'm kind of getting, trying to get a feel for the uniqueness of your journey versus yeah. maybe the mob, you know? Yeah. I'd say the vast majority were still in private practice at that point. Cause at that point I was out when I started AIG, I was only out five years and that's typically the tipping point to go in-house um, is right around five to seven years because and again, I think about this in my, my, my day job now is you get past that, you get to junior partner, partner, they get, you know, uh, lawyers get more expensive to bring in house when you get them in that five to seven, they have experience. They know what they're doing for the most part, if you mm -hmm. get really good ones. Right. And they're at this point where they're, they're back. Do I want to be in a hamster wheel for the rest of my career? Or am I like that? You're getting into that. Cause right. You're thinking typically people around that at that age or in their early thirties, that five to seven year, you know, maybe mid thirties, depending if they, you know, went right to law school or not. And they're, they have real life going on, right? They got, they got kids, they got spouses, they got stuff going on, you know, they want it. And, and, and in-house, the in-house life pr provides a better option for, I say quality mm -hmm. of life than private practice does, yeah, but the vast majority are, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Because you're not on the, you know, on the hamster wheel, man, like you got to bill hours. So if you go on vacation for a week, you can go on vacation, but you just build zero hours that week. So how are you going to get to your target? Like it's, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's wild. Um, so most of them are in private practice. Cause again, we're about five years out. So everybody's typically in their early thirties. Um, I had a couple of people, honestly, though, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked the question. I had a couple people that are out of law already. They had gone oh, they're in, done. they're done. They went in, uh, passed the bar exam after graduated, went into private practice primarily, and were just like, nope, this is not for me. This is not the lifestyle I want. Um, oh, it, it's, I, I like, I, I'm sick to my stomach hearing that, you yeah, know, yeah. Just, just even engaging on this journey, you know, of, of being a lawyer, you're talking seven years before you get a job that's either doesn't pay very well or is insanely hard. You know, right. you're, you're 10 years until you're into something that's still very challenging and now starts right. to pay well to, to, to somehow quit after, I mean, if you're on the wrong road, turn back. Right. But at sure. the same time, that's just a, Oh, yeah. that's tough to hear. Well, one of the things I talk to folks now, and I'm at the age now where I have friends that have kids that are in college thinking about maybe going to law school is I sit them down and said, look, I'm here to tell you about kind of similar to this. I'll tell you about my journey. But at the end of the day, 
what you need to understand is going to law school and practicing law are two very different things. Like I'd go back to law school all day long, right? Like it's it's a it's an intellectual boot camp. Like you get challenged all the time, the Socratic method, you know, all that stuff. You learn a lot of things. I do that all day long. But they're not what law schools and you know I've I've talked to people that'll listen. But law schools don't do a great job of preparing lawyers for what the actual practice of law is. Yeah, they teach you how to you know think critically and write memos and you know maybe draft some pleadings and on and on it goes. But the lifestyle that goes with that is not well kind of communicated. I think there's somewhat an expectation that. You go to law school, you know what you're getting yourself into. So, you know, there's some, you know, again, middle of the road guys. So I didn't do a lot of private practice stuff uh, other than my after my first year of law school, and that was a kind of a part-time kind of summer deal. Like you don't get a you don't get a full, you know, kind of understanding of it until you get into it, and it's you know, it smacks you in the face. Like, oh, I got to bill hours. Wait, I got to do this clients. Wait, it's my you know, it's my anniversary, but there's a client emergency, and I can't. Like, there's just stuff that you're not really prepared for when you they don't prepare in law school how to do it. So. Um, I have, you know, easy for me to say I'm out now, you know, I'll be, I'm pushing 22 years out of law school. So I have obviously perspective that some won't have when they're, you know, 22 and bright eyed and bushy tail and I want to be a lawyer. Um, but I, I, I like to share it with them. It's like, look, I'm not trying to talk you away from it. Uh, you know, to me, to your point, you own your own career, right? I tell my team here every day, like you, you, you know, you own your own career. No one else owns it, but you. So you got to make a decision what you want to go do, but I'm, I'm going to tell you my perspective on how about where I came up and my, my viewpoint and take it or leave it. I'm trying to formulate the perfect question uh, as I continue <laughs> to hone my skill as an interviewer on this podcast, but it has something to be like, if, if your daughter had a opportunity for you to volunteer at lunch at 10 AM on a Tuesday, how likely are you able to attend? Yeah. And it uh, sounds, you know, for, for me in the role I'm in right now, you know, fairly likely I could probably make it work because a lot yeah. of my work is asynchronous and I'm not necessarily billing hours and whether I, you know, make up that hour in the evening or, or during the day, it's, it's, I enjoy a very flexible environment, right? It right. sounds to me like in a lot of these years that you're talking about, the answer to that is like slim to none and none's not really around yeah. you know, or slim's not really around, right? Like, yeah. Uh, so I, I've missed a lot of stuff. I will say that I've missed a lot of stuff and I'll, and I'll tell you, um, one thing that you learn from it and, you know, not to pivot, but we'll get into this later, but is, you know, how are you going to lead lead and manage your people, right? That work for you. And one of the things you could pull any of my team here at all. I hear that I work with now, like my, I tell them all the time, you have to put guardrails up in your life. And like this place here where I work now, it's challenging. It's hard. I love it though, but it's challenging. It's hard. It's demanding. There's a lot of work to go do. And, you know, people could argue we could use 10 more lawyers, but we're not getting them. So <laughs> this is the, this is the world that we live in, but I talk about guardrails all the time. And one of the, the lines I use is exactly your example. I tell myself, I tell my team, I said, look, if your child has a one o'clock Halloween parade, um, you better get there. And I'm telling you right now, you don't want to, you don't want to miss that. So you better go do that. And if you don't do that, like then I, you and I are going to have a problem because you didn't go do that. You know, because, you know, when we hire, we hire professionals. I expect you to get your job done, but I expect you to balance your life as best you can with what you have to do at home and versus work. And if you have to shut down and go to a Halloween parade or a game after school, because, you know, school, you know, most stuff is like right after school or mm -hmm. or 10 a.m. You got to go to a, a dance recital for a pre, your preschooler. Go do that. This place is going to be here. The work's going to get done. If people are going to jump up and down about the fact that you want to do that, you can just send them to me. I'll deal with that all day, every day. It's not a problem for me. So. But that helped me build perspective to your exact point. Like it just, it was tight days where I was just like, man, all right, well, I got to be in court or this dude wants my time. And, 
and you know, I got, you know, kids and, you know, and my kids are getting older now. Right. So yeah. that's also a factor that life work-life balance is definitely a factor going private practice in-house for sure. Yeah. That's uh that's something that I want to really give people the perspective of, because I think so often people, myself included, right. This is like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'm like, I don't know, work as little as I can for as much money as I can. And then until I don't have to do it anymore. And <laughs> I think that if you added some flavor to that, you know, now that I'm a little older, I might've said, well, I want to do something that's fulfilling that allows yeah. me to be with my family. And, you know, if that means I have to budget a little bit, the point is like, you know, yeah. it, you need money and you need time. If you're going to invest both of those things to do something like build a family. Um, yeah. you know, I, I have other friends that are consultants that still do the, the hourly bill thing. He's worth 10 times what I'm worth. Yeah. And, and it's okay for him in this stage of life. Right. So right. I just, I think it's important for people to kind of catch on to that a little bit. Um, yeah. but let's go back to the, uh, to the sure. AIG. So, so you're at AIG. What happens next? What happens now next? My good friend Ty is the 2008 financial crisis when I was at AIG. Um, so, I, you know, I was at AIG and you, if you're familiar with what happened at AIG was front and center in a lot of that back in 2008. Um, yeah, you know, we'll leave the, the who's and the what's behind. But at the end of the day, for me, from a from a career perspective, kind of was one of the best things that happened. And I say that because, you know, economically speaking, it wasn't great because, you know, based on the bailout and all the things, we were kind of frozen for years, like years. No no salary increase, not, not even COLA, nothing. We were just wow. frozen for years. Bonuses were, you know, de minimis at best. Um but I had just I had, I had just been there a year when all that started coming. I started in June of '07, and two, you know, kind of September, October of 2008 is when kind of the you know the oh, world oh. went upside down. Yeah. So yeah, and and I and I'll and I'll get back to the good part of it. But the, you know, it was it was. But I just I had just gotten there. I really liked it, the people I worked with within that the department. I was in the commercial insurance litigation function, um, primarily doing you know general commercial litigation, most creditors' rights, bankruptcy, all the things that I wanted to do. Um, Commute was terrible, but it was, you know, it was doable because I had, you know, I didn't have to bill time and my boss was, you know, understanding of, you know, my commute and so forth. And, you know, um, and I say it was great because the people that I work with, I really like, I still, my, my, my boss, that was my manager there. I still talked to him to this day. I left AIG going on eight years ago and I still talk to him all the time. He's just a, you know, super manager, great person. Someone I learned from, um, but also there's opportunity. There's there's chaos and opportunity, right? Like, you know, chaos is a ladder. Some people, you know, the famous phrase that you hear. So there was a lot of chaos going on within AIG at the time I was there. So, you know, kind of fast forward, I was at, I was at AIG till 2016. So I, I, you know, toughed it out for close to 10 years. And, you know, there was not a lot of economic or, you know, compensatory growth for me in that time. A lot of career growth, career growth. I was promoted twice during that time frame, uh, during, um, that nine years, I think I, you know, I think I was the only one in the law department at, at for the entirety of AIG that was promoted during that time wow. because I saw opportunity where people were worried about like things that I thought to be inconsequential about why well, they're not paying me. I'm not getting this much work. So I'm not going to do stuff. Like I just is like, man, I just like, you know, I care about the people I work for and I care about producing a result and I care about my work product. So I'm going to dig in. And it allowed me, my, my boss and or my boss at the time, and he, he termed the phrase for me, these, these hairbane schemes I would have where I would take a process and figure out how we can do it more efficiently. And um, in, the, in the climate that we were in around, you know, kind of saving around, um, around savings generally, expense savings. 
And I was one of the, I was the first person in the legal department to actually offshore an entirety of a, of a function within the legal department um, and saved us, you know, a couple million bucks over time. Just, I saw the efficiency. I just saw it. I'm like, this can be done through technology. And again, this is 2010, 11. So technology is nowhere near what it is now, but technology, lower cost resourcing, et cetera. So I saw opportunity there um, to get cost savings. I saw opportunity to be more efficient in what we were doing. And I then kind of doubled down that over the next couple of years. Um, and it kind of helped me become, you know, as I said, when we, fir- when we first started talking, my career path is kind of linear, like go to law school, be a lawyer, do this. Now I call- saw myself as more in this in-house role, certainly an attorney, you know, um, you know, giving legal advice, reviewing cases, all those things. But I saw myself kind of as an operations person too. Yeah. Um, and that's where quite candidly I'm out. So I'm out of law school now, probably about close to 10 years. So about 2011, Then I started, you know, my, I really enjoy this, this other component of what I'm doing, this operational piece of what I'm doing. I want to see if I can lean into this a little bit more and, and, and go do some stuff within AIG to, you know, not because I necessarily was only striving for promotion, because again, good work begets good work. And I felt like I get recognized at the appropriate time when it mattered because I had trust in my manager. Um, and he always, he always he never let me down. But I thought this is the right thing for the business. I want to try this because I think it makes sense to go do this. And it's also a little bit out of my comfort zone of like just being a lawyer and, just, you know, and, you know, thinking about things from a, from a legal uh, lens only. So I did that and I went and did that. And, you know, it was, it was successful at the time and, you know, and that's where it was. So I'll stop there. But yeah, that's kind of the AIG journey for me. It wasn't, it was kind of like scary. I'll never forget what I heard about AIG and I was in Dallas. We had just, I was there with one of the guys from our controller team. We actually had gone to the Eagles play the Dallas Cowboys in the last Monday night football game at Texas, old Texas stadium. And everything was like, you know, I thought everything was hunky dory except the fact the Eagles lost to the Cowboys. So that was a problem for me, but I, mm. you know, it is what it is. The next day I'm at, we're at, you know, kind of Dallas Fort Worth airport. And on the screen is AIG going bankrupt. Is it, you know, what are they going to do? Blah, blah, blah. Cause Lehman brothers already gone bankrupt. No bailout for them. And I remember getting on this plane to fly back to Newark, New Jersey, kind of, you know, I'm like, Oh my God, I just started here a year ago. I got two kids. Like, what am I going to do? Like, you know, real world kind of thoughts about how this is going to end for me. Um, can I go back to my firm? And I land and I remember calling my brother and I said, Hey, what happened? He's like, Oh, you guys got a bailout. So you guys are fine. I'm like, I don't know what that bailout means. Obviously I learned a lot more about sure. that over the yeah, course of the next, find like, out. next set, eight years that I was there. Uh, but it was an experience, man, and I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, you know, it was, you know, people may disagree because of what it was in that time and that climate, but I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah, what you said about chaos being a ladder and your examples of how you sort of, you know, took your own privilege to think outside the box of being a lawyer and think, okay, well, if I were running the law department, what would I do mm-hmm. as as the business, right? You've kind of shifted into a business mindset. And, and got yourself out of a function mindset. And I will tell you that that has been a key to my success in my whole career. Um, I joined uh, like the petrochemical procurement industry at a time when um, a winter storm Yuri knocked out a ton of production. It was like everybody I was talking to who had been in the field for 20 years said, we've never seen anything like this. So yeah. I was able to use that chaos and say, well, here's how we should do things better. And I don't know how you did things in the past because I wasn't in this role, but this is what we should do. And those ended up delivering huge savings and, you know, operational improvement that are still still there today, right? So that kind of, I think, just taking control of the chaos and saying, no, I'm, this is where I think we should go. And it's a pretty good idea. And, and also doing so at a time where the company I had worked at was in a down year. So it was, 
I, I was um, promoted to a manager without the title or the pay. They just gave me the work and said, figure it out. <laughs> and I was, I was sitting there like, isn't this, you can't, is this even legal? Like, well, how, how, like, this is so unfair. Right. But right. instead of, instead of like, like some of your colleagues did maybe and just saying like, well, I'm just not going to do it until they pay me or something. I said, yeah. well, this is my work that's being out there in the world. And if it's going to be mine, then it's going to be good. And that yeah. led to some of the biggest breaks I've ever had in my career. So totally. great Makes story. Total and for, yeah. for our listeners, no matter what you choose to do, learn from this and remember that when there's those moments of chaos and you want to throw your hands up in the air and be a victim like everybody else, if you can just pause and turn yourself into like a, this is my quality of work and this is who I'm going to choose to be and I'm going to trust the process, that's going to get you a, a long way in life. Yeah, totally agree, man. I think that's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that with me. I don't think I knew that either, but... I mean, to me, sometimes you got to be willing to step into the fire. And if you're not going to step into the fire, um, you know, and kick, take that chance, you're going to get burned. Then you're, you're, you know, you've already kind of hit your ceiling. And for me, that's just that, that my personality, the way I think that's, that is not acceptable. Yeah. I, I, I fully believe that, you know, people are self-limiting when they choose to be self-limiting. And, you know, that is just not something that, that is not how I'm going to operate. Um, you know, I'm trying to instill some of that into my kids now, um, particularly I have older ones that are, you know, one in college, one about to be in college and, you know, don't be self-limiting. Like you gotta, you know, you have a long runway ahead of you to go do things. And just because you're doing something now that you think you want to do, don't be afraid to pivot. You know, don't be afraid to seek opportunity. Um, I think it's really important. Um, and I sometimes, you know, I, <laughs> my wife sometimes gives me the business appropriately. So. She's like, you know, you just, you know, some, you know, just understand, Ryan, that some people aren't you. Like they, they don't want to go do these things. They don't want to go back to school at, at 45 years old to get their EMBA with and meet a bunch of really great people like I did. They just, they're not into it. And I just, I, it's, you know, to me, maybe I'm the oddball, but I just find that baffling. Like I'm just like, how? Like you only get one spin on this rock, man. And I, you got to take advantage of every minute of it. I, that's how I view it. But yeah. So I, so, um, you know, so 2016. I kind of, you know, AIG was still coming out of the fog a little bit. So I was looking for more opportunity um, to do different things. And it just wasn't there anymore for me. And, you know, I also think that kind of overall picture, like sometimes you have to, you know, understand when you just hit a ceiling somewhere and the opportunities that you want to go do um, uh, aren't there for you. And you have to, you know, consider making a move, pivoting one way or another, either even sometimes backwards, right? I mean, sometimes you got to sure. go backwards to go forwards. So I got to that point in 2016. It was a hard choice. I'd been there almost 10 years. I really, again, really liked the people I worked with. And I had a team at that point of about, I had a team in the US of about uh, nine. I had a team in the Philippines of about 15. So I had a pretty good group of people that I was working with and was really excited about it. But I just knew I was, I, I knew I could stay at AIG because it was all around me. I knew I could stay at AIG for another 20 years and just kind of do what I'm doing and just coast. Just coast to the point we just went through, like that's not who I am. So I actually made, you know, this, you wanna talk about people thinking this is crazy. I actually went back into private practice. I saw an opportunity in 2016 with a law firm that I've been doing work for for a long time. So I knew the people. So, you know, again, it wasn't cold. I kind of knew what I was, you know, I knew the people, knew the opportunity was, you know, I definitely had some, some friends inside the walls of the law firm. So I'm back into private practice in 2016, um, but I was in a big law firm. The law firm I went to, I don't know what they are now, but in 2016, they had 500 lawyers around the country, you know, one, one or two international offices, but primarily in the U.S., 16, 17 offices around, around the country as well. 
I was based in their Philadelphia office primarily. Um, and I was in their commercial litigation, bankruptcy kind of creditors rights thing. So step back into the hamster wheel, as they say. And, and you went right back to billable hours again? Went back to billable hours, but, it, but I will say, went back to billable hours, but you know, you, you, again, hindsight, hindsight a bit, but a bit calculated as well. Like I had made enough really good contacts when I was during my days, you know, prior career, primarily AIG, but also before AIG with people that are in different positions now that were that, you know, I saw as potential clients. So what this pivot is now, so again, linear lawyer, I felt like, you know, I had some operational skills now based on my time at AIG and what I'd done there. Now I step in the role as what I'd call being an entrepreneur because I needed to go try to build a book of business. And I, you know, they hired me without a book. I had zero, I had zero, <laughs> I had zero clients. I had zero kind of um, uh, billable hours, zero, zero uh, income for the firm, but they hired me. They took a chance. Very fair. Yeah. I took a chance. I mean, similarly, I took a cut again um, because I needed to go into, um, into that role. Um, and so I went to the firm. I started there, I think it was September, October of 2016. And the first thing I did when I got into my office in Philadelphia there is I had a whiteboard on my wall and I wrote down 10 companies and the people that I knew at those companies. And those were, that was my target list that I was going to start from day one because I knew I had to bill hours. Even at, even I went in as an income partner. So there's two types of partner, in most law firms, equity and income. Income are the ones you go in, you're basically the same as, you know, an associate, you're a W2 employee. And, um, you know, you just kind of, you know, you just get a salary, right? You're not, and, but you're not eligible to share in the company's equity at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as an equity partner, you have to, you know, most firms you have to buy in to the equity, but mm -hmm. you're also eligible for to reap the awards if you know you blow budget or something. But then you're you become a K1, um, so it's a little bit different. Um, kind of pay your own taxes, blah blah blah. Um, but I came as an income partner, so you know, I'd say low risk on their part for the most for the most part. Sure. But I had a list of ten, my target list. And I had to bill hours, so I had to do, you know, real local work, you know, review, draft, all those kind of things. But I just, dude, I just put my head down and got after it. And I knew I had to, if I was going to succeed in that, it wasn't going to be because I was going to grind hours. Like I knew I was going to be what they call a grinder and a finder. I knew I wanted to be more of a finder, which is I'm going to find clients, you know, you know, build a book of business and so forth. So I did that, started right away. Um, you know, first 2016, I was only there four or five months, so not a ton of expectation, you know, but really 17, could you go back to zero of everything, bill <laughs> hours, um, you know, client, you know, client payments. And so you go back to zero 17 was, I was going to get after it. Right. Uh, and I did, I got after it in 17, pretty hardcore. Um, you know, got a, a decent amount of business in the door was billing my hours, but I wasn't perfect. And I, you know, by the end of 17, 2017, I'd maybe had, you know, billables that were, you know, clients that client origination for me was maybe half a million, maybe, um, right. Bill hours were around 1600. So I was kind of like, I wasn't failing, but I wasn't really succeeding from my perspective. So I got after it and I'm like, you know, I, back to zero on January 1, 2018. And that's when it like all fell together for me. And I, you know, finished 18 with 1800 billable hours. And I had a book of business that cleared was north of a million. So um, how many of those 10 a, clients did you land? Uh, eight out of 10. Yeah, I spent the time. No, I, I 80%. I, I hit 800 all day, baby. But it was it was a lot of, I had support from the firm to go market and go do things. I had the right people in place that let me go do it. And it was new client too. It wasn't like I was leaning because AIG was a client of this firm, but I took none of the origination. I said, I don't want it. I said, that's too easy for me. Like, that's easy. Like I could, you know, I, too easy. I don't want that. So 
I, yeah, I lent eight out of 10. And then I got some, some others that I just through connect through connections that, you know, it's, they didn't even, I just, you know, I just constantly stayed in front of them and did the right thing. So I got through 2018 and I was, you know, my billables were good. And, you know, I had a, oh, I had a, you know, I had a seven figure book of business. And then part of that was, you know, somebody I knew um, from the AIG days who has, was at a new company as a new general counsel of a new company. And I hit them up and they were kind of, you know, fast paced company and they were growing. They, they had a small legal department. They needed a lot of help. And I was kind of like an outsourced um, in-house legal lawyer, if that makes sense. Cause I had done it, but they just had a ton of issues. And, you know, the firm I worked at and we still use them today in my current, they're great. They're wonderful people, you know, primarily again, all over the country based in Kansas city. Um, so that kind of Midwest kind of grounding and they're just really good people. Um, so, you know, and, you know, that showed in the kind of relationship they built with, you know, through me with the the general counsel of the company that we were working for. And I, you know, but it's going into 19, my, my, I was going to probably, I was going to surpass certainly a million and a half, probably closer to 2 million in my book of business in just a few short years. So that to me was again, linear operations and entrepreneur, which is operate, you know, as an entrepreneur, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> this is some dumb lawyer, but you got to go after things and you got to take chances and you got to, you sometimes you just got to ask, like ask for that, coffee, ask for that lunch, ask for that dinner, get in front of the people, you know, be smart about it and get some coaching sure. if you need it. Yeah, but at yeah, the end yeah. of the day, we'd love to do work with you. Let me, what can we do to, you know, get your business like that kind of like, you know, kind of salesy stuff, which I don't entirely love, but you need sometimes, you know, you're, you're not going to eat if you don't ask. Right. You so, sure as hell don't seem afraid of it though. No, I mean, yeah, I, no. that's a, something that a lot of people will get really nervous about would be not only landing yeah. the plane and asking the question, but just making the call to begin with. Yeah. So it so sounds like, I mean, did you, you never considered just straight up sales? I mean, you always had to have the, the, the lawyer background and, and now you've just sort of fallen into operational continuous improvement, yeah. excellence. You've fallen into sales, which to your point is now basically entrepreneurial. Right. And, and now you said over 1.5 million in, in business. Is that like, can you put that in perspective of what that means for, for what you brought to the, the firm? Like, is that, is that a ton of business for an individual lawyer to bring in? Or is that about average for somebody? Yeah, it, I was on the right path. I mean, okay. I'm on the right path for more. I mean, it's a big <laughs> firm, right? I mean, the firm, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what the firm does. They probably do a couple hundred million in revenue. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's a well, big firm with big institutional clients. Um, well, one but for someone to the bottom line by an individual contributor would be uh, yeah. huge. Yeah. I mean, I was on the right path and I would have continued to, to continue to grow. Um, from, you know, again, zero, 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 zero across the board. When I started in, in October, 2000 or September, October, 2016, zeros across the board to where I was uh, when I left there. And we'll get to that next. When I left there in the spring of 2019. Um, and there's a reason people thought I was crazy because I was leaving, like you're on a good path. And I'm like, I get it. You know, if I, if I would have got that book two, three million, like that's a good day for everybody. I definitely would have become an equity partner and it would have been, you know, I would have continued to grow. And, <clears throat> you know, there, I, I do, there was a, there is no doubt uh, a rush you get when you land that client. It is, there's, I don't know. And you know, I, like you, I played sports going on. There's a rush there, but I've never been like, you know, a professional athlete or come out on a stage with, you know, when you're as, a, as in a, but there's a rush when you land that client and then you get that, you know, first piece of business from them and then it grows and develops. There's just an intoxication around that. I don't know how you, you know, it's, I still feel it now and I haven't done it now going on. I left there going on almost five years ago. It's just incredible. Like it's, 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 it can't, I, I totally get how sales can be an addiction. hundred percent. Like I get it. <laughs> yeah. That's gnarly. <laughs> yes. 
I haven't done uh, a ton of sales on that scale. You know, mostly it's been procurement, but I know what it's yeah. like to, for me, that feeling usually comes in, in closing a deal, right? Yeah. Oh, the worst part is when you're trying to negotiate, make something happen and it just falls apart and you walk away, not making yeah. an agreement. But when you can, you know, shoot the, the gap just perfectly and everybody yep. says, this is okay. And, oh man, totally yeah, it's, there's then there's then there's the ma then there's the maintenance as I call it right there's that client service and which I think is a lost art dude I gotta be honest with you like there's a lost art in client service in the world today and I see it in my seat now where you know I got law firms falling over themselves to get to me just because of our business and how big we are well, that is my main like vendor if you will is, is an outside lawyer or right? an outside mm -hmm. law firm I do not view this as transactional if you view this as transactional like you know we give you work you give us product we pay you like that's not going to work for me. This is a partnership, right? Because what I need you to understand is in order to keep my costs uh, where I need them to be internally as a, as a non-revenue generating component of this company, mm. like I need an extension. I can't hire 15 lawyers. If I did, I wouldn't need you. I need you to be an extension of my team. And I need you to, you know, I need you to, to really buy into what we're trying to do. I want you to keep your objectivity as our outside counsel because, you know, we, that's what I'm hiring you for, for your counseling but I need you to be an extension of my team and you got to be a partnership. And if this is, you know, you come to me every, at the end, it's, you know, it happens kind of done now, but I always have every fourth quarter about, well, we're going to increase our rates and so forth. And there's a, there's this, there's this thing about the legal profession that I just find, you know, again, baffling is law firms think this is like a one-way street. Like, Hey, I do work for you that you give me and now I'm increasing how much I'm going to charge you for it. And that's how this is going to go. <laughs> no, no, That's a two-way street. If you want to increase your rates and I want my discounts to be higher, what are you giving? What's what are you giving me in return for that? Like, right. and don't tell me I'm going to go, oh, come give a CLA to your firm. I already pay for their CLEs. I don't need you. Like, I don't need you to do anything. That's not, that doesn't hit my bottom line. What are you going to, what else, what is it you're going to do for me? That, you know, that's there, there's there, you know, this won't shock you either. Those are contentious conversations. I actually enjoy because there's just like, I am, I am selling the, I'm selling like, you, like I'm, I'm the provider. Like you're just the servicer. Right. So, so you're not that sales to procurement, man. Not yeah, you're I, negotiating yeah. on the other side of the table. Wow, exactly. But well, that's a part of it is like, no, you know, guys, like, I, don't come to me with like, I'm billing you at this amount per hour. Like, I know exactly who you are and what you do. There's no chance. But I tell them like, guys, this is a part of the partnership, right? Like, yeah. this is, it's not. And again, you know, you may do all the things right when we're working on a matter together or somebody on my team. But in the, the day, you come back to me, you start hammering me about rates and this and that. Like, that is a part of the partnership, too. This is, this is like an economy between us, right? And, you know, I want you to see my perspective. And, you know, I find when I work with little outside lawyers that have been in-house, they kind of get it. And that was an angle I always played when I was outside counsel. Like, hey, man, I get what you're up against, right? You're not, you're not generating revenue. Like, how, how can I help you look good in front of your bosses? Like, what is it that works for you? You know, is it cutting this bill by 10%? Uh, fine. Done all day because <laughs> some of these rates are so inflated anyway. But, like, you, you know, help me, help me help you. What can I do for you? So... And that's a mindset that people have. And it's, you know, it's, I don't know, you know, my, I don't know my, you know, my peers now in my current space, I don't know how they think about that. And because a lot of them maybe not have that experience. They don't, they're very linear, right? They came from law firms, they, you know, big law firms and they go to these big jobs and they just see things the same way. I think it's a different conversation I need to have with these people. Let me ask you this. Um, it, in the, the legal career, is it usually pretty clear what the next step to do is in any given kind of moment or project that you're on. In in supply chain, I would say a lot of times what, what we're doing is we're take we're, we're clearing a queue and getting everything back to like homeostasis or equilibrium or whatever 
word you want to use. Like we're kind of like, okay, we're back to zero, back to zero. Everything's going fine. And then if there's a problem, the queue gets very long, right? The work increases and it's a lot of triage, yeah. but, but in, in your day-to-day -day work or in a lawyer's day-to-day -day work, attorney's day-to-day -day work, is it usually pretty obvious? Like, all right, well, we need to fill out this form, submit this form, then wait to hear back from this person. Okay. Now that project goes aside. What's the next project? And like, is it pretty clear what the next thing to do is all the time? Or does, does the job require a lot of like creativity and thinking about what it is that comes next? In, in, I think both in-house and ex, you know, outside counsel, it's always about, you know, it's, if it's, is it deadline driven? Meaning do you have a case where there's a deadline, you have to get something filed, right? That you, so you need to get this in because you know, discoveries do by fill in the blank date or this, that, or the other thing is due by the, then you have to kind of back, like back at back date. It's like, okay, what do I need to do to get to this date? So you kind of use, there's a, there is a calendar component to it. Some of the others are, you know, I'd say that's more litigation sense. Like when you have deadlines and so forth, you have, you know, you got to get all these depositions done by a certain deadline. I think when it's transactional, you know, your contract of view management and so forth, that's prioritization, right? And my, my team here for sure. And I was the same way. Who did it come from? <laughs> like, who wants it? And who needs it? Right. There's there, cause there's a hierarchy in this world without a doubt, um, depending on who it comes from. And, you know, I enforce that hierarchy with my team and I, you know, I, but I also give them, I, I will give my team all day, every day, I'll give them air cover, right? If something comes in from my boss, you know, it's priority number one. Right. So it's priority number one for me, which means it's priority number one for them. <laughs> and so <laughs> we get that over and they all get it. And if I thought I said, well, I'm doing X, Y, and Z for, you know, this person over here, I'll okay, well, they're not that person. So tell them you got, Hey, I got this, you know, most people within this organization get it when you drop that name. But like, if there's somebody that pushes back, like I need this, like you, again, I, you know, send them if they're, you know, my team is very professional. I have very senior attorneys that are very strong. I don't, they don't need me, but if they did, I'm happy to go like, look, you know, this guy, like <laughs> this is, this need, let me just explain how this is going to work for you. Like this right. is how this is going to get done. Um, other than that, like that's transactional. Right. And so we're trying to, if it's not deadline oriented or, you know, hierarchy oriented, then it's what's the company, what is the um, company goals and objectives that with this, mm -hmm. that this, what you're being asked to support, and that's going to get prioritization. Like that's what, you know, that's what you're going to go get. We need to go do sooner rather than later. You know, that's kind of like a hierarchy, I would say in general calendar person, you know, company objective and below that, then there's, there's day-to-day stuff where you can kind of pick and choose how you want to get done. Um, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, it's, that's, you know, in that world around here, it's the squeaky wheel. Usually you're like, oh my God, this guy's driving me crazy. Let me just get this done. Um, so, you know, but again, it's not, it's not, um, it's one of those kind of, you know, calendar, um, person, company goal, or you just got your day to day you need to get through. So like when it comes to private practice, it sounds like the goal was always of the metrics was billable hours. And Correct. when you're, when you're in-house, what are sort of your like management incentive plan goals? Like what are your, like to hit bonus, you know, your team needs to X, Y, Z, right? Like, do, is that still structured for you? Was it that way at IG? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so what metrics are those? Yeah. Yeah. So, that, so I'll say, you know, certainly billable in, in a private practice outside council, billable hours and client origination, right? Like how much, yeah. how much money did you bring in from your client? You originated the client paying the fees of the firm and then billable hours. Cause that's what you're, you know, you know, you're, you might bill out at 400 bucks an hour, but at the end of the day, really you're only for your salary, it's only 150 and the other 250 is just overhead to the firm. So there's always that kind of like, you know, how much are you contributing in total to the firm, mm -hmm. both on the billable hours plus the client origination. Um, in, in, internally here at in-house, 
it depends. Like there's not really a, like you have to get so many, you know, contracts done in a given year. You have to get the contracts done as you need to get them done as a part of your work. Right. So it's a little bit more challenging, uh, you know, to measure. Right. But the way I view it is I do, I have objective and you know subjective goals that I have for my, my, my people. Mm-hmm. The objective ones are, you know, is like we have a contract management system and I'm, you know, again, this goes back to operational mindset and it was kind of developed at AIG. Um, when I first started AIG, we didn't have any real reporting around legal spend or anything like that. By the time I left AIG, we, I was doing 12 reports a quarter <laughs> around cool. spend and all these things. And people saw that as burdensome. Again, I didn't. I'm like, look, well, how are you going to measure yourself? Like how do you measure what your team's doing? Like I have a full docket of stuff to do. So I'm watching my team and like, okay, well, tell me what you did today. Like, that's not going to work. Like you have to have objective criteria to measure people. Exactly. Uh, what their work. Yeah. So we have, so we have a, here, we have a contract management system that measures kind of um, volume and we break it into a five tier structure. They picked it. They said one is the easiest five is the hardest. I would have done the opposite, but whatever. Um, so, and then, you know, we run that, I run that report on a monthly basis and everybody has to open matters through the contract management system. And, you know, there's, there's updating and you know, single source of truth. And I run reports. I'm a big, I'm now a big report guy. And I can also see not only what people are doing, but also like our is because we have the, the scaling system is work being placed at the right levels, right? Cause we have kind of four tiers of, of, of employee within the legal department. We have a legal analyst, we have a paralegal, we have, you know, call it a junior attorney. And then we have a senior attorney. Um, senior attorneys are all the ones that report to me and then kind of you know, triages down from there. And, you know, these level ones, which would be like a simple NDA, which essentially has five to six clauses that we actually care about. Other than that, it's fairly template templatized. Those should be doing, those should be done by paralegals, like all day, every day, right? We've trained our paralegals. We have a form all day, every day should be doing that. So when I see, you know, pull a report, pull, that's a level one, right? So a level one comes up and I see the senior attorney that reports to me doing 30 of those in the past like month. I'm like, dude, like no chance. That's, you know, it's not highest and best use of your time. Right. Right. You gotta, you gotta. So part of that is, is, and you know, there's everything in between. So part of it is not only getting the work done, but also like um, making sure that the managers are managing and managing their docket of cases, managing their teams, you know, docket of cases, making sure things are hitting the right levels um, with respect to who's doing what. Um, And then, you know, and then also scale, like how much are we doing? And I run my reports are, you know, year to date stuff versus, you know, this would be like, obviously this is the end of the year. So it'd be end of 20, you know, two, what were the numbers compared to 23 compared to 21 compared to 20? And like, and that's, you know, kind of growth of work. And, it, you know, here it's, it's, it's wild. <laughs> the work is gone. It literally looks like this and the work has gone up. And, you know, but when I see that and communicate with my team, like I go to bat for my team. Like, uh, you know, with com- around compensation, around other thing, other, you know, kind of uh, and to incentivize them. Like I'll go to bat all day, every day. Um, we have a formalized, you know, performance management system. I generally think performance management systems aren't very good. I just don't right. think they figured out how to do it correctly yet. Um, yep. When I was at AIG, we had forced ranking. It was like the worst thing on the planet Earth. Um, oh, I just, that sounds it horrible. Horrendous. It was terrible. It was terrible. I mean, yeah. they went away with it two years later, but it was terrible. But I don't think ours is necessarily great. We're working on it. Uh, I think it is, that's that's a priority for 24. But, you know, to me, you know, I try to, like, this is about communication. I talk to my team all day, every day about communication. Like, you need to be communicating with the people below you or above you, depending on where you fit. And, you know, yeah. even my leaders, like, I'm above you. You need to come to me. Like, what's going on with your team? What's happening? And that is to be, yes, you should have on a consistent basis. I talk to my direct reports I usually hit one a week, maybe two a week, every, you know, for the entirety of the year. And we're having conversations about their work, their teams, 
you know, no doubt, uh, you know, because I think it's important. We're talking about what's going on. You personally, is everything good? Like you need anything? And, um, you know, just keep honest, open dialogue. And then you rate people that way, in my perspective, like how, you, you know, your volume of work, you know, your community is a man, you know, are you a manager? And if you're a manager, how are you managing? I'll do skip level meetings with people all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's just, and again, I'm not sitting here like, oh, tell me about this. And I'm just like, I'm not doing that. Let's just have a conversation. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about it. And kind of tying back to the subjective and objective goals yeah. that you kind of already set Correct. out. You mentioned earlier that you have a paralegal that works uh, in your department. Um, and I'm, I want to ask a question. Um, you know, when I interviewed my sister about being a physician assistant, she mm-hmm. said, the best thing I can tell someone to do is go to a hospital and get any job there and just like look around, right? And see yeah. all, all the different things that you can do to expose yourself to the system and the different roles so that you might better, you know, have a better understanding or view of what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, is, is there any opportunities in legal to do that without, you know, like committing all the way to law school? Like before yeah. you write that first check, how do you get some exposure to this to sort of like be in the mailroom almost, so to speak? Yeah, hundred percent. It's a great question. I think paralegal is definitely a, a path. Um, and I always, I tell people all the time, a good paralegal is like a good nurse to a doctor. Like you just can't replace them. They're just like incredible. Like, you know, we're fortunate. We have a couple that are just outstanding, not only because they're you know technically sound and good at what they do, they care uh, mm-hmm. about their job. They care about their work product. They care about the team. You know, culture is really big on this team for me. Um, so paralegals, you know, that's, you know, paralegals is a step. I, I've actually gone a step further and we have two now on our team and we're going to hire at least two more in 24. We would hire called legal analysts. So that would be to me like a level below a paralegal. Um, and, you know, they're typically right out of college, maybe within a couple of years, they may have had one job before they're out. They're thinking about the legal profession. And we have one in particular who you know came from us. She's a, she's a she's a state grad. Went to was at James Madison and was working in an HR kind of uh, recruiting environment, at, like kind of like a like a staffing company. And she yeah. wasn't feeling it, you know. And she was James Madison's history. She's like I don't know law school. And you know through a connection that she has here, met her, and you know hired her on the spot. I'm just like you're the kind of person we want. Energy, thoughtfulness, and she's here now. She's been here about six months. And, you know, we talk about it because, you know, that you hire those people and you train them understanding they may leave you. Right. But that's sure. a part of the deal. That's a part of the deal. Right. That's I think, you know, you talk about how they, you know, ways you can give back is like, look, we'll give these people the opportunity to expose themselves to the legal environment now in an in-house setting. And we're very clear uh, with the person here. Like, this is not the same as being in private practice. Like, you know, get to that point. Like, it's just right. it's a different world. But you come in here and we deal with, you know, everything that law firms deal with from, you know, contract review, counseling clients, litigation, um, you know, on, you know, and everything in underneath those kind of buckets. So I think that's an opportunity is either paralegal, paralegals typically have a little bit more, you have to have a little bit more skill, like here in Grand Rapids, there's, you know, Davenport and Grand Valley all have you know, yeah. paralegal certificates. Yeah. Um, legal required? analysts, I think. Say again? Are those certificates required, like a paralegal certificate? Because I'm trying to think of like, yeah. you know, I don't want people to have to go through like additional coursework to get just the exposure to maybe yeah. have to say like, ah, being a lawyer is not for me. Right. Like, I'm yeah. and so I love that legal analyst, uh, sort of solution to that problem. Is that something right. that you're seeing like in the law field in general, that more people are hiring, I don't know, analysts that are interested in legal rather than have formal education to help carry some of the bulk work and get exposure or, or is that I can't say what you're doing or 
Yeah, I, I you know I never want to think like you know that I'm some sort of a you know genius that came up with the idea. So I don't know, but I don't know if it's being done out elsewhere. You can start as a junior paralegal. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like that. Uh, it's kind of like the um, idea that was that won the 2023 pitch competition, right? Oh, if you have yeah. exposures right. to, correct. If you can get exposure to, like through an internship or some forth, but typically if you come from a paralegal job, maybe a junior paralegal, they'll say no experience needed. But then you're going to learn on the fly, um, which I think is a little bit challenging to be a paralegal, right? Paralegals sure. typically have, uh, you know, they, everybody's got to start somewhere, right? So yeah. but they typically, that's, you're going to struggle in a law firm environment because even because paralegals are billing hours too. They're revenue generating um, and clients pay for that. So there's the same kind of hamster wheel where those people are responsible. Like, you know, senior paralegal has their list of due and they have to train somebody. It's a little bit more challenging to do. And plus, when you hire at a law firm, you're hiring to generate revenue, right? Not necessarily to engage and, and, and you know, train and so forth. So, again, I don't think we're unique, but I don't know that's a ton going on out there. This yeah. is a program that, you know, these the, the people we have here are great. Like I said, we're going to hire more. And for me, like, look, I mean, there's there is definitely some altruism in what we're doing and why we're doing it. But there's also we get pretty smart, hardworking people at a lower price point than the paralegals because paralegals demand their higher, higher salaries, you know, either in-house or externally. They just do higher when you're in private practice because you're revenue generating than here where you're not. But, you know, we get some real good experience and real good support. Um, and we help, you know, I'm trying to build here in, here at Acresure, like we want people to have careers. Like I want, I don't want people come in two and three years and leave. Now, legal analysts might leave because they're going to law school, which is totally fine. But like, I want people to have careers here, you know, and hire people and like what we're doing and, and appreciate what the company's, you know, trajectory is and so forth and want to stay with us as opposed to, I mean, I mean, how many people you know have had like five jobs in the, you know, in the last like 10 years, right? Like people are just hopping all over the place. So we're trying to build, a, you know, an environment and culture. Um, we're trying to give some exposure to people who are interested in the legal field. Our one person's like, I don't know, I really like just doing this. And I'm like, ah, and there goes my issue of self-limiting. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like in in the legal profession, you're almost playing against the book and sometimes mm. you're playing against an opponent, right? Like, yeah. so, like, is that true or is there is there always somebody else that's crafting up a way to make your argument worse on the other side? Or are sometimes are you just, you know, kind of like the disclaimer we did at the beginning of the episode, yeah. right? There's nobody out there coming after us yet, but we were kind of <laughs> doing that just to protect against the book, right? Yeah. Like how much of this yeah. is adversarial versus formal. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I look, I, I tell people all the time in, in the U S different outside the U S but you pretty much can sue anybody at any time for anything. So, um, you know, that, you know, that's, um, that's just how the way that U S the, the system is built. Right. Um, that's how the system is built. Um, the kind of the, 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 the theme is, you know, it's you have to craft the facts to best fit the case that you want to put on. So in other words, you can get terrible facts. Um, but if you can walk through all the evidence and kind of create the case that's best for you, um, that's a good outcome. Um, you can't change the law. The law is what it is, right? There's case law you can argue, but everybody knows it, right? Like you, if you went and read um, on, you know, a breach of contract for whatever, you could you could Google it and figure it all out. You know, you're not a lawyer. Like, you can make an argument. Like, why, you know, based on case law, the, the precedent's there. You can make an argument. But can you spin can you spin the facts for your client? Can you then frame the, the case law and to support you? And what else do you have um, for leverage? 
right? This is you know a lot of in the in the law the law is leverage. Like what is it that you have over that person or what they have over you that you got to turn the tide a little bit, to, you know, being a better negotiation perspective. So um, it's, you know, it's a cat and mouse game. I wouldn't say one or the other, but I do think that um, the way you frame things matters in a given case. Um, and look, there's some cases you're just, you know, they are what they are, right? Like you just, you know, you try to spin those facts as best you can. But at the end of the day, even if you have a terrible case, you're still going to create you're still going to frame the facts that as, you know, even if they're awful, <laughs> that are best for you, even though you like, for, you're going to settle, you know, you're going to sell this case because if you go to trial, you're going to get murdered, right? Like you're going to get killed. Like, okay. but you frame the facts of the case so that you create a some leverage to make that other side think that there's the case isn't as strong as it is to give yourself a better leverage posture. Like right. there's just, you know, you, you have, it, it is a bit of a, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game that you always have to play. And in a day, I mean, you know, lawyers are who they are. I mean, this is literally, this is our job. We're, our job is to identify flaws in other people's argument, expose it, and then dive headfirst into it to make those people think they have no chance of winning that case. And they should pay us, they should settle, whatever, like whatever it's going to be. So, you know, um, yeah, so, you know, look, I mean, honestly, there's, there's where lawyers get bad raps because people, you know, completely, you know, there's a little bit of a gray around the ethical kind of like, how do you, you know, you can't out, out and out lie to your co to the, your adversarial, you know, uh, lawyer, like you can't, like you can't lie to them out and out. Right. Yeah. And you have to produce the right amount of evidence, but people play games with it all the time, you know, thinking that, you know, they won't get caught and it just, you know, gives lawyers a bad name. I've seen, I've seen lawyers that, you know, I aspire to be in my, during my time. And there's lawyers that like that person should not have a, like that is embarrassing to the, practice of law that that person is allowed to actually practice law it's brutal how terrible this person is oh, so are there um are there continuing education requirements yeah for, for you to uh, hold your license it varies by state there's not any in michigan uh but there are like i'm licensed in pennsylvania new jersey and there are required there are cle's continuing legal education um that we have that you're required to get most uh new jersey's every two years pennsylvania's every year you have to go and do so many courses and so forth so um but yeah, there are. There's none in Michigan, though. Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, anything else on top of mind that you'd like to share today? This has been really comprehensive. I know a, a lot of times I try to keep these to an hour, but uh, to be quite frank, you've had more experience than anyone else I've interviewed before. <laughs> so uh, listening to your story has been just just tremendously insightful. So in 2019, yeah. kind of, you know, got to this point And, you know, I said, you know, business, was, I book with business was great. Things were going really well. <clears throat> but it's that hamster wheel, brother, back to zero every single year. Even though now I had a continual flow of, of business, I knew the business was going to be there, mm -hmm. the hours and the time. And it's just like, man, like this is not, it's not where I want it. It's not necessarily what I want to do the rest of my life. Right. And I was at the time, I thought that was only, that was 40, 2019, 42, right around this time. And, you know, one of the, one of the people that I knew that I was able to, that we were now doing work for, I was growing out of the law department and had an option for to become the head of litigation for the company, which is exactly the role I wanted to head towards when I was at AIG. If I had been able to saw that path through AIG, I might not have left AIG. I didn't want to necessarily leave my boss because you know I was hoping he would go and then I would follow like that one of those two step things because I really mm -hmm. liked him a lot. But it wasn't it was you know it wasn't there. But now I had this opportunity and it was back in house. It was at a job that. Um, um, you know, I don't have to build time. I don't have to do client development. It was back at the job I wanted. 
what I really liked about it was um, similar to when I started AIG and I forgot, to, I failed to mention this, but there was, this job was, there was no one else doing this job. Like I wasn't replacing anybody. It was a brand new role. Same thing when I got to AIG originally too. And that always is like, um, interests me because it's, it's, you know, I can make it what I, I want to make it. I don't have to kind of like, there's no expectation. I'm just going to do what the other person continue to do. And it was a job I wanted. So, you know, I was going to work remote. The company was, you know, based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I, and I said, I'm not moving to Grand Rapids, Michigan. I refuse. There's no chance. I got kid, young kids. I had four kids by this point. I'm like, I'm staying in Pennsylvania. I'm not moving. Oh, absolutely. No chance. That was May of 2019. Started Acrisure as the head of litigation. Um, and then January, 2020, um, you know, for, for whatever reasons that, you know, that uh, my predecessor was let go. Um, so a little bit now it's, you know, 2020 and there was COVID. So there's a little bit of a, you know, you know, I was, I was in Pennsylvania, worked for a company in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a little bit, we were a little bit of ship without a captain because we've not hired to replace um, that person. Um, and then in, you know, through the, throughout, I was talking to the, the executives because we're kind of reporting to them and obviously being in litigation, you know, we had settlements, we had expenses, legal expenses and hiring outside counsel. So I had a lot more engagement with, some others in the C-suite. I was approached in, I think it was April of 2020, if, if there was an interest for me to, um, you know, at least apply or, you know, put my hat in the ring for the chief legal officer role of Akersher. Um, But it had, but I had to move to Grand Rapids. Like, you got to be in Grand Rapids. That's where we're headquartered. We're not moving. We're not going anywhere. It's, you know, you're executive. You got to, you know, on and on it goes. Like, <laughs> message received. Understood. You got to be in Grand Rapids. Got so, it, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, got it. Um, talk to my wife. Um, and really talk to my, you know, talk to my oldest son, because my oldest son, this is the end of his sophomore year in high school. So I felt like this was going to be the biggest you know, lift on him, including my wife too, because where we lived in Pennsylvania was where my wife grew up. And we had lived in the same house at the time for 16 years. My son was a month old when we, my oldest was a month old when we moved into the house. It was a big change. And there was this, you know, my wife and I had some really, you know, heart to heart conversations about like life and growing up and I had the perspective of this is a great career move for me because in order to be a general counsel at some point, you got to get your first general counsel job somewhere. And this is the opportunity to potentially get it. And it's a growing fast company. It's intriguing. I was, you know, I kind of liked the people I was working with for the most part. Um, I'll get back to that in a minute. But I understood what that would mean to my family and uprooting everybody from where my wife grew up, particularly my wife. She had a pretty good friend network, you know, back in, you know, where we live in Pennsylvania. So I was, you know, cognizant of all that. So, yeah, I let my oldest son have a say. I didn't let my younger kids have a say. Like, not that I, no, you don't get to say anything. I just, you know, it was just more like he had to, he had to see at the table, right? Because he was, point. yeah, he was tipping point. And probably one of the more mature things he's ever done, even now he turns 20 in April, um, is he, he came and said, you know, he tried to negotiate a couple like, well, what if you went and I stay back and live with, he could stay with my in-laws and finish high school. And I'm like, nah, dude, we're not splitting up the family. It's not going to work like that. Um, and uh, he finally came to you, you know, this is, you know, getting to early April kind of saying, he's like, look, if we're all going to go, then let's go do it. And it was great. It was like, you know, and to when he said that, dude, you know, Roger that mission's clear. Like we just go get this done. So then I'm like, I'm in interviewed um, a couple of people, including CEO, landed the job first, first um, started the job on June 1, um, 2020 as a chief legal officer here at Acrisure. And the, all of us moved, the six of us moved to Grand Rapids in August of 2020, um, a week before school started for, you know, where our, my kids go to Fart Sales Northern. So a uh, week before they, school started, we moved in and here we are. And at the wasn't time- that like, Wasn't that in the dead nuts middle of COVID? Correct. Yeah. I, we were looking at houses over 
what we had Virtually. a realtor here and yeah, like over like FaceTime and bought a house, the house we live in now. We actually bid it was at Grand Rapids Market was so hot, man. Like we we lost out on three bits of houses. Um but we landed the right one. Our our house is fantastic. So yeah, but our our guy was I'll never forget my my oldest son's a baseball player. He was pitching. He literally on the mound, and my wife and I are in the back of her car with an iPad up. <laughs> this guy's FaceTiming around this house. Left the baseball game, made an offer. They accepted it. My wife and I flew out two days later to do the inspection, and that was our house. And we closed, and you know, we moved in on I don't know whatever it was a week before school started. You know, at the time, the legal department right around then was was um, six lawyers and two paralegals. Um, at the end of 2023, so you know, call it nine days from now, we're not hiring anybody in the next nine days. We'll be 16 lawyers and um, seven paralegals. So we really have, you know, almost tripled our team in, in, in roughly three years. Um, and that's because, you know, teams bought into kind of what we're, what I'm putting together from a dire- from directionally with, you know, the people that matter ab- above my pay grade and about how we want to go do this thing, how we want to run the legal department, uh, how we're going to track and measure kind of the work product we're doing, this, you know, what our turnaround time is going to be, our client service levels. So really fortunate. I mean, we're going to, you know, budget's done. We're going to hire some more folks in 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 you know, 2024 as well. All in, we'll be pushing probably close to 30 folks on the legal team. So oh I'm really proud about that. It's been great. And that's just legal. I also have risk management, which is like 15 people. And then just corporate, I have corporate secretary team in London that does the Accurate International stuff. So my all in, my team, you know, in the next year, will push about 40. Um, so it's been a wild ride. Um, I'm really thankful for everything we did and, um, you know, what we did and my family's commitment and my team's commitment. And then the last piece I'll leave is, so I got to this role and it's like, all right, linear operations, entrepreneurial. I never took a, I didn't take one business class my entire life, not one. So I'm like, Oof. Uh, and I sit in these meetings with the executive team, finance, corporate finance, capital raise, this and that. I'm like, what in the, what is, what is all this about? <clears throat> so how am I going to fill that gap? So I, you know, you fall back on your level of training, right? Well, I need to go, I need to go get, I need to go find somewhere that's going to teach me like basic foundational classes. And lucky for me, I landed in the Lansing cohort of the Michigan State's executive MBA program. And I got to meet great people. I learned a lot for two years and I couldn't be more thankful that um, that happened. And that in fact that I got to meet my team 18, people I love very dearly and yourself, the current host of this podcast. And it was just, it's just been a wild ride, dude. It's been a wild ride. And I'm glad it's here. I'm glad I did the Michigan State program, and I'm glad I'm here at Acroshore, and and that's kind of my story. Have you been able to use the things that you've learned in your EMBA to to change sort of what you're doing today? I mean, I know you've been in that program for over two years, so from, or or you were in that program for two years, hence graduated. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. (laughs) But has that made a big impact on on your day-to-day? Yeah, in two ways. Um, from a substantive business perspective, it does. Like I understand better. I'm not going to sit here and understand corporate finance when the the formula is, is this long on the on the whiteboard or whatever it was um, from that knucklehead. But um, like I understand kind of when you think about when they talk about when I get to the, today, I got November's financials. So we got those today. Like I get all what it means, EBITDA, margin. Like I get all that stuff now and the impact it has on the business. I get the importance of, uh, as I, you know, one of the things on the, we're going to, we're going to build in a new, um, uh, matter management billing system. I understand what that means when you try to roll out or replacing an existing one. I understand what that means and the pitfalls that can happen. And we thought about it, you know, did the analysis, does this, is this the, it just cause we can, and it's going to get budgeted for, should we? 
and like that analysis that instead of like, here's the keys of the car, go drive it, right? And like, well, let's, you know, should we do this? Is it better? Is it really going to help provide efficiency and lift? What's the cost of that from a time perspective? Um, but I'll say, so substantively, yes, for sure, no doubt. But also from a um, personality perspective and a team management perspective, right? Like I came into the, to the EMBA program and um, was, was, was lucky enough to work with people anywhere from 15, to, primarily 15 to 20 years younger than me. Um, and, you know, understanding their perspective because you know you get into work you kind of do your thing and you're hearing them and you're talking to them and you're just like okay but you know the, the the intimacy that's provided by being on a you know i think particularly you know obviously i'm a i'm a lansing cohort till i die but like the, the smaller environment that we had and the engagement we had with my team and the other you know teams within the lansing cohort and like the difference of perspectives from you to the jobs that they you know the jobs they had their backgrounds you know their age and you know how they view things is you know you know could be wildly different than I view things. So you learn a lot about yourself and how you can become a better leader and a manager and kind of a better person just by having those different perspective viewpoints, which, you know, had I not done the program, I can't sit here and say that I would have changed necessarily. Um, so I think it's, it's multifaceted, kind of the benefit of the program. And I'm a, you know, I'm a huge supporter of it. And I hope to kind of roll people through on my team to do that at some point um, here in the Acrisure. I'd like to send more people there. I think there's, there's, there's benefits to it. But, you know, we'll see. It's, you know, it's not for everybody, right? As you know, like it's a, you know, it's a push-pull. It's a lot of work. Um, and depending on what you choose, I, you know, I'm not, I don't think, you know, doing the flex option makes a ton of sense. Like you don't get the, you don't get the, the relationship building. You don't get the time away and um, work for some people, good for them. Um, but I think like you got to be in it. So that being said, like, you know, I'm not, I'll never force anybody to do it. They got to know going eyes wide open. But I do think it's a beneficial tool, particularly for lawyers that don't have a business background to go do something like an EMBA program. Do you feel like you've made it now that you're, uh, you know, executive level team member in your discipline at a large, wildly successful company? I mean, are, is this the top of the hill for you? And, and I almost can almost guarantee the answer is no, because how could you possibly keep keep iterating, keep learning, keep stacking up experiences? I mean, you just don't seem like somebody that can sit still. So. For for a lot of people, I think they look at, at where you're at right now and think that's the top. So yep. how do you feel? Great question. Uh, yeah, pondered this one a bunch, right? I mean, we had a, I don't remember which class it was we had, but somebody asked the question like, you know, what is it you want to do or what makes you happy? We had to have pictures and put the pictures up and like, what does this represent to you? That was I don't the one that class. HR one HR class I missed, man. I had to DJ a wedding that night. I didn't make it. <laughs> Heard it was great. Well, my perspective is yeah, for sure, like you know. Um, you know, I am at, as far as in-house, you're, you know, the general counsel of, of a business, you kind of are at the, at the, the pinnacle. Um, I got in fairly early. Like there's not many, I was 43 when I became the general counsel, typically just on experience and you got to bounce around a bit. It's usually in the early late forties, early fifties before you get your first one. Yeah. That's why I kind of was, you know, really want to get into it. So there's all, you know, is there an option like, you know, general counsel of Amazon? Sure. You come a bigger company, like is more high profile, but you know, what does that mean? Like, um, I'm really appreciative of the, the, this, the, you know, not only my own team, like my team that works for me, but also the team I work with above me. Like there's just not people that think like some of these folks do. And I think what makes our company super unique. I do think that, um, you know, being at AIG was a hundred year old company. It's very stodgy, slow moving, you know, bureaucratic. It's not here. It's the opposite of that. And that, like I, I thrive in that environment. 
So it'll be really hard to go back. It'll be hard to say kind of call it lateral or, you know, bigger. If you go to a bigger publicly traded company and make more money and it's bigger like that. I don't know if that's for me um, necessarily. I'm, you know, certainly, you know, love what I do and I'm going to stay here as, you know, as long as I'll have me, you know, for me, what's the next level is I'd, you know, I'd love to have something of my own. I'd love to have my, I love to build a business, take all, lean in all the experiences I've had, um, take that risk. Cause then to me, all the things we've talked about from the beginning, linear nature of being a lawyer, um, the operational component, the um, entrepreneurialism, the business, you know, background, if you will, um, have benefited me, but have benefited a lot of people. I'd like to kind of pull all that together. And what does that look like for me if I roll that into a business? And how can I synergize what I've done historically to create something I think is special? And that's mine. Um, and that, you know, do I build it, sell it, build it, pass it on, I, you know, who knows? Um, I have lots of ideas of things I want to do. Um, and there's, you know, that's, you know, to me, that's one of my, one of my weaknesses is, you know, making that move is like, you know, kind of like taking that, taking that step off the ledge a bit, you know, I'm not going to quit this job. I love this place. I'm not, you know, it's not that. So it's kind of like, you, you know, how do you, how do you fill in the EMBA time? It's well, why don't you build a business? That sounds like fun. So um, that's some of what I'm looking to go do. And I've had conversations with, I mean, you and I have talked, I've talked to my other, my, you know, my colleagues about it from, uh, from the team 18. And that's the next step for me. I don't think I can go into another environment where, um, you know, it's kind of similar or, or, or worse and meaning it's not as fast paced, it's not as growing. It's more, you know, go in, step into, you know, there's somebody comes around 800 years and you're going to go and just be the general counsel. There's probably some benefit to that from an economic perspective, but like, I don't know, you know, life will dictate a lot. Right. Sure. But at the end of the day, um, there's more out there for me to go do. I promised my wife I wouldn't get another degree. She did say no more of that. So I, don't think, I think that's, I think I've, that's, that's, uh, well, cause yeah, I have four, like I have the master's in bankruptcy too. So I have four degrees and she's, she's actually lived through it because we, we, I met my wife in college. So she's been through all four of them and she's just like, enough is enough already with you. What does it matter with you? So no more degrees. Although, you know, you never know. <laughs> you never know. Never say never, um, right? never say never, brother. I'm, you know, I'm a young man. I'm ready to rock and roll if there's one that makes sense to go do. But yeah, dude, I don't know. I mean, you know, right now my focus is obviously I would do the best I can for this company because I, I know what our objectives are the next three to five years here. And I want to support that. And, sure. um, and then also, but I also want to, you know, I'm, I'm very, into like building out what work, what do I want to do? If I was going to start something tomorrow, what would it be? How would I do it? You know, when am I going to take that leap? Can I manage it while I'm working to this place? You know, that's all the things I'm thinking about nowadays. One, one thing I would just say is uh, to our listeners, if you're wondering what, what company culture is right at a place, um, I think that uh, if I may be so bold from what I've learned at AccraSure, um, they're, like competitiveness to win their, um, their lack of, uh, their, their lack of acceptance of mediocrity or of, um, slow moving or washy decisions. Right. If that's, if that's a culture that Akashur built, you know, fast paced, competitive, aggressive to win. I think that you're somebody who embodies that culture very, very well. And I think, I wonder sometimes if that isn't a, a real contributor to, you know, the, the personal fulfillment someone gets from a job, right? That their fit is the culture's fit. And cultures change and people change, not, you know, not for all seasons of life, but right now you really seem to embody what, what AccraSure is doing and that. It's, it's really fun to watch you win, man. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. I mean, that culture starts at the top, you know, um, 
and that it, you're, you, I can't say any better than you just said it. It's exactly what we do and we are here. And I do think that's why um, I'm not looking to move on. Like, I, you know, I, I'm, I've, I, you've heard through this whole, my whole journey, like I've gone backwards to go forwards. Um, I'm not going to sit idle. It's not kind of who I am. And, um, and, but Akershore is fulfilling from a career perspective. There's like any job, there's days I'm like, oh, <laughs> but like, you know, there was, a, but then, I, I steal, uh, you, you've, you probably heard me say this, I steal a quote from our, our founder, our co-founder CEO all the time where he basically um, says, um, you know, he gets asked, you know, particularly by the board, what is it, you know, that keeps you up at night, you know, you know, and again, that, that, that insinuates like there's, you know, scared, risk of loss, fear, something's going to happen. And his response is absolutely perfect. His response is, I don't worry about, you know, it's not about what keeps me up at night. It's about what gets me up in the morning. And that obviously insinuates like, what am I going to, how am I going to attack the day? What is it I need to accomplish? What are my goals? What do I need to go, what do I need to go do to advance? You know, and you can use it for this business, your personal life, your you know, family relationship, like on and on the list can go. And I get that. Like, that's how I kind of view it. It's not, you know, what is it that gets you up in the morning to go do what you need to go do? And um, how are you going to fulfill yourself? And, you know, I think that's, you know, you know, that's a kind of a North star for me. So last question then is, would you still, even after all that you've been through and as much as the profession has changed over your time in it, recommend the legal career path to your younger self and others? I would definitely recommend it to myself. Um, you know, I, it's what I wanted to do. I've obviously gained a lot of benefit from it. And I don't mean economically speaking. I just think that there's, it challenges you in ways that, you know, um, you, I would never have thought possible, right? And, and you, you are when you get to the law school teaches you to think more critically. Right? It's not the only thing that does, but it helps. You're challenged often. Um, you're challenged every day. There's a lot of interpersonal work you have to do on yourself, and I mean that with you know people that you work with, you know, um, you know other attorneys that you work with, um, counter, you know, opposing counsel. Like you have to literally learn a lot about yourself. It makes you think and be disciplined um, and plan. Um, I think, you know, that's how I view it. So I definitely think it was good for me. Well, I'll sit here and tell you, I've not, you know, I'm talking to my kids. Like, I don't know that being a lawyer is for them, not any of my kids right now. I mean, not the older two for sure, who are, and I say that not, they're closer to college. I, you know, seventh grader and eighth grader. So, you know, we'll see. Um, but I don't think it's for them. They're just, you know, we're different, right? And my wife reminds me they're different too <laughs> than me. Um, I just, you know, the only, the only takeaway I have is like, you know, there's, you just have to really understand what you're going to get yourself into if you're going to go do in the in the private practice. If you have a plan, like I'm going to go in private practice for five to seven years and I'm going in-house, like come hell or high water, that's my plan. Totally fine. I get it. If you're like, I'm going to go and I'm going to become a partner at this mega New York law firm and make a bazillion dollars. Okay. You should really maybe take a look in the mirror on that deal because you always go back to zero. Um, you're going to work you're going to, you know, the, the law is a jealous mistress is what they tell you in law school. And it's true because you're selling your time. So you think about when you're selling your time and what you, what you have to achieve in order to get to that top of the mountain, like you have to sell your time, it's time away from family. And, you know, some people are wired for that, you know, look to each of their own. I don't have, I don't fault anybody for it, but I think that people just need to take a real hard, you know, just because it sounds cool to be a lawyer, doesn't mean you need to, you should go do it. And you should really have some conversations with people that have done it in-house private practice people that are in the government you know are lawyers in the government nonprofit like and i do that we have interns that come in the michigan state intern michigan state law school intern we had this past summer I've, i told her i said you've got an in-house you should really do you should try to do 
sometimes internship, externship with a, you know, nonprofit pro bono, something like that. You should, you know, do, you know, do private practice, you know, go do a, you know, a summer there. Um, and then maybe hit up like, you know, work in intern in like the DA's office, which is kind of government focus or something like that. I was like, you know, again, not that you're going to accomplish that in your three years of law school. I said, but you can check a lot of boxes and learn about what path you want to take within legal or not. Because I said I had friends that are out of law within five years of graduating law school. They were totally out of legal, the legal practice altogether. So, you know, again, I'm trying to, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? But do your best in part, like your knowledge to folks and things, you know, think about. And again, everyone choose their own path and I fault no one. But, you know, just if I can, a little bit of wisdom that makes, you know, can help them think about this is really for me, particularly if before they go to law school and take on all that debt and, you know, so forth and so on. Like, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to do it. But Well, I would say uh, very few people in my life have supported me as fervently and as eagerly as you have. So thank you for not only joining me on the podcast, but, you know, inspiring me just to start one and just to send it. Um, so I, I wouldn't be here without you. So thanks for helping me start and continue this journey today. I really appreciate you, Ryan. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I hope this goes. I hope this goes viral. I hope you get to be as popular as the Kelsey brothers, as you know, I'm a big Eagles fan. So hopefully you'll be as popular as their podcast someday. And I welcome, you know, uh, if I can come on again in the future, other topics, man, I'd love to do it. So thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so happy to see you putting this out there and, and living up some one of your dreams because I know there's more than one and I support you in all of them. So best of luck here, brother, and appreciate it very much. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Thank. You. We got it.